Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and forgetting to write an intro. I'm Joe Simpson. <laughs> and I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Uh, not bad. How's it going not for bad. you, Joe? Good. I figured I can get away with using that intro maybe once a year. <laughs> Didn't do my homework this morning. I'm sorry. No. What have you been working on? Um... Uh... So I spent a good chunk of the last two weeks being slightly blocked. Mm -hmm. um, we talked last week about having to rebuild certain portions of my app based upon the the failure that I experienced with um, uh, SQLite. And I made a new branch, set up kind of a a secondary library for some of this stuff and started kind of migrating code over because some of the code I could migrate and some of it needed to be rebuilt. And um, I, I just kind of started working my way through it, but in a state where basically all four of those layers were dead. Mm -hmm. So I started constructing a whole new batch of four layers kind of all at once. And that, it turns out, was a catastrophically bad idea. Because <laughs> I got completely overwhelmed. Um, there was just, there was too much there to keep it all tracking. And I was going to have to write too much code before I could effectively test anything. Um, and yeah, I was just not... Happy. I mean, it was it was going to be a couple of weeks where the app wouldn't even build because there'd be something misconnected somewhere. Yeah. Um. <clears throat> so I, I was like, I have to do this a different way, but I'm not sure what the different way is. I'm going to let this percolate for a bit, um, and I ended up coming up with a solution later in the week, which is probably a much better answer which is what i'm going to do is i'm going to instead of rebuilding the whole thing i'm going to start from the bottom because it's relatively well encapsulated so i should be able to just swap out an individual piece without touching all the other ones mm -hmm. like if i end up rewriting all four sections i'll end up with something very cool but that's not actually required you know, I've got a storage layer. So if I rewrite the storage layer and technically the linking layer, the connector, I don't have to touch any of the other stuff. The slicer will still slice and shove into the storage layer because it just passes in an array. It doesn't, the, the slicer doesn't have any idea how the data is stored. It only knows that it generates array objects and passes them off to the storage layer to put someplace. And so at that point, then I can kind of start at the bottom and rewrite only specific portions of the thing. And I don't even have to change any of the function names. <laughs> like the function names can be the same. They'll be bad and I'll want to rewrite them eventually, but I could literally do individual functions at a time. Um, unfortunately, it took me most of that time to come up with this plan. Like it was just, there was too much swirling around in my head and I couldn't 
see the path. So while that was going on, and I was not making progress on that part, well, I was making progress of a sort. I came up with a plan. Um, I did a bunch of user group meetings. Hmm. Um, and did, uh, let's see, one FM perception demo, two FM comparison demos, and a training thing on how to make virtual lists. Oh, nice. file maker technology. Um, and ended up having a lot of conversations with then other users, not like in a Slack or in a email exchange but like actually being able to talk back and forth mm-hmm. they could hear my tone of voice as i'm expressing how confident i am in relative portions of the the whole process and got some really good feedback from that and one of those pieces of feedback particularly with fm perception is that the documentation that I have for that application is a little spotty. Mm. There are some places where we go into large amounts of depth and other places where we've never substantively discussed it. And so there's a lot of users out there that use FM, use 30% of what I wrote for FM perception because they don't actually understand all the nuance about what's actually in the application. Mm-hmm. Like, how does this particular column work? What is it really indicating? And because they don't know, they never look for it. Yeah. Or if they see it, they don't trust it or understand what it does. So they just kind of move past it. And so there's a ton of stuff. One of the sessions that I did was one where I had kind of really good audio feedback from the people that I was presenting to remotely. And so if somebody in the room went, Oh, I heard that. And it's been a little while since I really had one of those in like a quiet space. Um, the last time I was doing FM perception demos was effectively at DevCon. And while I can see the person, a lot of times I'm looking at the screen and so I'm not catching everything that's happening and there's tons of noise around and I'm in a huge rush mm-hmm. to try and move through it rather than just kind of let's talk about this and this and this. So what came out of that was um, a plan to put together a series of videos about FM perception and how it works and what all these little indicators mean. Mm-hmm. Um, the one way to think of it is like, you know, this particular group, I was doing a half hour FM perception demo for, I've done 45 minute. I've done one hour long ones. I've done an hour and a half. And even in an hour and a half, I'm slicing things off. Like in an hour and a half, I don't have the time to talk about everything that the software does to any kind of depth. And so I started working on a series of videos that you can kind of think of as like a two and a half or three hour long FM perception demo broken into chapters. Hmm. So by the section of the app that we're talking about, there will be a 10 or 15 minute long video on just that section. And so somebody would say, hey, I'm working with tables today. Let me refresh myself on 
what kind of data FM perception surfaces about that and just watch a 10 minute video and be as up to speed as I'm capable of getting them. So yeah, the FM perception demo, when I have all the time in the world, what does that look like? Mm-hmm. And and I have the, uh, the complete attention of the audience, no matter how long I talk. <laughs> how, how good of a demo can I do in that kind of environment? And so I pulled out ScreenFlow, sorry, ScreenFlow, and started recording some segments, built a big outline so that I know what sections I want to hit and what I want to talk about where, and um, started laying this stuff down. I've really got two more segments to do before I can start releasing, Hmm. because one of the other things that they advised was not trying to do the whole thing at once, but do it as like a weekly series. Okay. Yeah. So just figure out what you need to do, get the process started, release one or two segments a week and get them out there. So to make them consistent, I want to make sure that I've got like a nice beginning and end bumper sort of thing, you know, title element you know, mm-hmm. name of the section. And I want to figure out what that looks like before I start releasing any of them. That required contacting a buddy of mine who's much better with screen flow than I am to be like, can you show me this? <laughs> Cause I like, I know how to record my screen with screen flow and that's about it. <sighs> um, yeah. I mean, you can cheat and do what a lot of people do. I see this on like tutorial videos a lot of people using Keynote or PowerPoint in full screen at the beginning of the video mm-hmm. while they're talking through an intro and then flipping over to the application they're working in. Yeah. And then flipping back to PowerPoint at the end. Yeah. I did a, a little bit of that. But I also wanted to have, I mean, just, I'm not going crazy, but just a really couple simple transitions. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to fade that title card into the segments. Mm-hmm. And I know ScreenFlow can do all of that. It was just I had no idea how to make it do that. And I hadn't sat down and done the Google searches yet. And I knew this guy would be able to tell me everything that I want to know about ScreenFlow in 10 minutes. And, you know, 12 hours later, he showed up. So Nice. Um, so really just what I need to do is get that title card sequence done and then figure out what I want that transition to look like. So I can basically drop this title card into each of the videos, edit the title for the section, and then uh, do like a mix down. And I'll have, I've got the intro part done and then the next major part that I want to do. Oh, I got the intro part and the basic how it works. Like this is the basic loop of FM perception. Those two videos are basically together. And then I want to get the exploring the interface section. Like how do all these pieces work? What do all the menu options do? What happens when you're right clicking on things, that kind of stuff. 
mm-hmm. you know, single clicks up top, double clicks down below, and why that happens, stuff like that. And that's actually probably one of the longest videos, that one in the report card. But once I have that done, I'll have a substantive piece that I can release as a chunk and then start dribbling out the rest of them. Yeah, I guess for context, for for other developers who are working on mobile stuff, I think it's it's hard to envision without ever seeing FM Perception just how many features it has. It, mm. it is a massive piece of software that does many, 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 many things with this data. And like, if you compare it, if I were to like count, somehow quantify what a feature is in retrospective timelines and count them, you would, I would probably have you know, 50 and you'd have 5,000. <laughs> well, one, one metric to look at would be, um, th- there's a, a big table view at the bottom mm-hmm. that gives you kind of a spreadsheet view of a bunch of data about elements of a system. It's an analytical tool. And <clears throat> that table across all various views within the application has something like 250 or 300 different columns mm-hmm. that all have their own logic about what they display, how they format it, and how they display it. Some mm-hmm. of them are swapping in image views, but there's all, there's <clears throat> between very simple and extremely complex logic that controls each of those columns. That's a lot of columns. Yeah. And that's a relatively small portion of the overall system and how it all fits together. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff there. And I was just realizing that, you know, the kinds of questions that I get from people. One of the nice things was that this presentation I was doing, once I got there, I realized that 50, 60% of the people in the room already had the app. Nice. And I haven't had an opportunity to do a lot of demos for people for a group where most of the group already has the app. And so Mm -hmm. they're not concerned about seeing how it works. They're concerned about what are the things that a, a, a basic user doesn't understand about this app. And I realized that there was just a ton of stuff there that I've never properly expressed to people. And so what good is spending a bunch of time on a feature that nobody knows exists? Yeah. I mean, I I get the personal satisfaction for having written it, but nobody else is getting any use out of it. So started working on that. I really want to get that, those bumpers set up. So I've got a little inflow and outflow and then start getting these out and online. I don't know whether it'll be in, a Geist feed or something like that. There was a separate conversation that I saw that um, the other thing people wanted to see was like use case videos. Like assume that I've never used FM perception before ever. And I want to find out what uh, layouts this field appears on. Mm -hmm. Just walk me through those steps. Open a DDR, click, click, click. There's your answer. Thank you. Video done. Yeah. It's almost like even phrasing that question for each one of those videos are like, how do I, how do I find out what layouts this field is on Mm -hmm. in parentheses in FM perception? 
almost kind of like answering the question in general with this tool. Right. That could be okay. kind of an interesting approach. Because it could be kind of a both a documentation video for FM perception users and a pointer to FM perception for people who don't know about it or haven't looked at it. Yeah. So I'm going to try and get Todd or Jeremy at Geist Interactive to do those videos. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, the three-hour FM perception demo is... I'm stuck. Yeah. Because the things that I've never properly expressed to anybody, nobody else can do that demo. Well, I mean, it's not exactly a hardship. You've never had a hard time talking about FM perception for as long as <laughs> necessary. No. So sometime around the uh, the last episode we recorded, I finally, for the first time in, gosh, a year or so, successfully filled out Microsoft survey about Visual Studio for Mac. Hmm. Um, it doesn't sound like the kind of thing that would be complicated. <laughs> but if you look at Microsoft's bug report history, there are a ton of people who were filing bug reports going, hey, when I download the new version of Visual Studio, it brings up a little window that says, please fill out the survey. And you click on the survey link and nothing happens. <laughs> and this has been happening to me for months and months and months and months and months. So I uh, downloaded a new Visual Studio version and made sure everything was all nice and patched and that window popped up and I clicked it and it actually brought up the survey. <clears throat> so I filled out all this information and there's some little uh, text boxes for filling in longer comments. And I said, you know, I, I find certain elements of the debugging process to be kind of a pain, particularly when there's crashes. I think I talked about this at one point that debugging in Visual Studio for Xamarin when the Mac app crashes on a thread in the background is a real pain. Hmm. Um, basically, just the, 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 uh, um, the whole interface just stops. Like, the app crashed, but you receive no error messages whatsoever. And... You're just left going, okay, somewhere in what I just did, it stopped. But I don't know why, where, how, what happened. Not even a, a cursory error message. <laughs> and that's kind of a pain, which was leading me to like, okay, I have to write all of this stuff unthreaded initially till I get it working and then make it threaded and then hope that that didn't introduce bugs, because if it did, chasing those down is horrible. So I didn't go into all of this in the comment. It was just, this is a pain, and I wish it was better about this. Well, uh, about a week ago, I get an email from one of the... Now, understand, this was just a, hey, how do you like this software, and what business industry are you in, kind of survey. Mm -hmm. We've all filled those out. But when I send this to Microsoft with these comments, I get back an email from one of Microsoft's product engineers going, hey, uh, can you clarify what you meant about that? Because we're really curious. And I've actually CC'd like the guy who's in charge of running that team. And he's been looking at the debugging process for Visual Studio for Mac. And we'd really like to get your input. I'm like, <laughs> this never happens with Apple. <laughs> never. The only time Apple has ever called me or contacted me in such a way 
like with a personal email has been to tell me they were rejecting my app. Nice. <laughs> that, that's it. When Apple contacts me, it's never good news. <clears throat> so, uh, so yeah, I was like, hey, I'll sit down and put together a quick little test app. And I built a new little Xamarin app that had two buttons. And one is a button that runs some code on the main thread that crashes. And it was just like, give me the count of items in an array that I never initialized. Hmm. So count of items in an array that is null. And that crashes. And then I the second button runs a threaded operation that calls the first function. So it does the exact same thing on the background thread. And it also crashes with basically no message. In the process of this, I find out where those messages are going. The messages are being generated. They're being thrown into the log. But because the app didn't just pause at the crash, but actually just threw its hands up and, and stopped the running process... Those are going into the log, but then the log is being automatically hidden because I'm not in the debugging process anymore. <laughs> so I'm like, technically, neither of these are doing what I want them to do because when it crashes on the main thread, the error always says that it's happening in main.cs where it's basically just saying, hey, run this Mac app. <laughs> that's where the bug happened. Well, I mean, technically you're right. But practically, that's not exceptionally helpful. So I put together this test app, send it off to Microsoft, get back an email message that says, uh, hey, you can't send us attachments. Okay, fine. So I throw it in the <laughs> Dropbox. <laughs> they, they, they don't want to receive executable attachments. I understand. Mm -hmm. Throw it into Dropbox, resend the email with a hyperlink instead. And it's no more than like four days later when I get an email back from that debugging guy. That says, hey, I checked that out. I confirmed your results and actually double checked it on like five other project types that Visual Studio can do. And you get the same inconsistent, and in parentheses, he puts incorrect behavior. Hmm. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> this, <laughs> I actually am angry with myself periodically for liking working with some of the Microsoft tools. <laughs> I'm sure, but 30 years as a yeah, Apple I've, fan. Yeah, I've been just an Apple guy for so long, and there are certain elements of some of the Apple tools that are very, very nice. Um, instruments, for example, is just fantastic. Um, usually surfaces exactly the data that I want very quickly, and I'm back into work. It's kind of like a... a Mac development version of like FM perception or vice versa. Um, but it was just, I file a bug and I get back an email, not just from a support person, but from like an engineer or a manager, a team manager going, Hey, provide more information. And I provide the information and they not only go, Hey, thanks. We'll look into it. He indicates that he took it very seriously, extended that stuff, filed a number of bugs against it. And this is something that I now have a fair amount of confidence that sometime in about the next, you know, six months to a year is probably going to get better. Mm -hmm. And it justifies and validates 
all the time I spent putting together the test app. Testing it, putting together a long email that details the problems, etc. Like, all of that time was time well spent. There's no doubt about it in my mind. Um, as far as I know, every bug that I've ever filed against FileMaker has never been addressed. <laughs> They're still sitting there waiting for somebody to look at them. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never gotten anything but an automated response from Apple's bug report system. Yeah. And in at least some of the bugs that I personally filed against the Microsoft stuff, I can see those bugs in their bug tracking system and see the comments that people are making against those. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Um, such a, a, a night and day experience and also night and day in the way that I feel about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like my... I get smiley and giddy when I get this experience rather than sad and depressed and feeling like it's pointless from the other experience. Yeah, so definitely a different culture, particularly with Microsoft. I'm not sure how they think about it internally, but from a business standpoint, one of Microsoft's core customer bases is developers. Like they sell mm-hmm. development tools in a way that Apple doesn't. And Apple, you know, Xcode is free. You have to, you know, pay $100 a year to be in the developer program to distribute your app. But they don't, they certainly don't treat us like customers. They treat us like nuisances. Yeah. And yeah, yeah it's just, especially the, the thing that really bothers me is like the lack of respect for other people's time. Like Apple doesn't, I don't think that anybody there realizes how much time it takes to file these bug reports and make the sample apps and record the videos and the documentation. And, you know, they never say thank you. They never acknowledge half the stuff. There was a Twitter thread recently about somebody getting rejected over and over again for something that just wasn't even happening. App Review said something was happening and it just flat out wasn't happening. And they were yeah. wrong. They never admitted it. They never apologized for the three weeks of time wasted, both you know, hours wasted troubleshooting an issue that wasn't happening, but also three weeks of not having this update on the store, that type of stuff. It's just infuriating. Yeah. And I guess to a certain degree, I'm sure there are people who have had horrible support experiences with Microsoft. Hmm. And I, I don't want to, you know, give them the, the blue seal of, of awesomeness across yeah. the board. But my support experiences with them related to developer tools have been some of the very best in anything that I've ever worked with. I mean, just almost across the board. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, another thing on his original email was, hey, if you'd rather like talk about this by phone, here's the link to my calendar. Just go ahead and schedule like a half an hour meeting and we'll talk. <laughs> what? Huh? Mm-hmm. That's I don't. Ah, wow. Okay, and I didn't schedule that meeting. Why? Because I respected their time too much mm-hmm. to schedule that meeting. I put in the email. 
There were like five people CC'd on the thing because that's how many people he'd CC'd into the original conversation. And that was it. Now, I did tweak them slightly about charging $6,000 for the Xamarin profiler. Um, yeah. And they, I so far haven't received any email acknowledgement of that section of the email. Um, I was like, hey, I, I sell developer tools. Like, I understand this market, but guys, it's $6,000 for this software from my perspective. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that... That may be the extent of the support that I'm going to get from Microsoft. And that's okay. Like, I'm so happy with what I've got right now that I'm just going to move past it. Um, but, uh, yeah, so that was, that was fun. And that, that was my time, uh, trying and failing to recode a bunch of code, uh, a bunch of user group meetings, starting up a new video series, and some conversations with Microsoft about chasing down a bug. that A bug that isn't stopping me from developing my app, just making it harder. Hmm. I, I'll, I'll take it. So, what have you been up to? So, uh, shipped another update just after the last episode. Actually, almost a week after. So version 1.0.3 is in the App Store. Yay! Yeah. It contains basically totally rewritten versions of the timeline edit and event edit screens. So these are two data entry forms that show up in a modal view whenever you add a record or edit a record. And I had written them in Swift UI, and for the most part, they were okay. But the text field, as we previously discussed, had a lot of issues. And I spent some time with the, the UI representable approach of wrapping UI text field in a Swift UI component and had buggy results with that. So I decided to rewrite these as static forms using UIKit. So from the Swift UI list view, say of timelines, if you hit the add button, it performs a modal by using an environmental variable in that Swift UI view to reach up to the hosting view controller and then use that view controller to call the presentation method to show another view controller. So it was really just a matter of passing a little bit of data during that process. And then the everything that's happening in there is happening in the UI kit and then changing the logic for the cancel and done button to dismiss correctly and re return the result back. Actually, the, the result doesn't need to be returned to the list view. It needs to be saved in the manage object context. And then the list view is based off of a core data fetch result controller, which is automatically updating when the context gets saved. So pretty, pretty straightforward stuff, um, but with way better results. So the text field is more reliable. It supports more of the features that people are used to. It's easier to dismiss the keyboard. And I also added better gestures, like tap gestures to dismiss the keyboard when you tap on another control. So say you type in a timeline name and then you select a color. If you haven't dismissed the keyboard when you select the color, it, it does it for you because it just assumes you're done with this thing. Um, moving on to the next. And then... So I mentioned the last show about rewriting the timeline screen, and then the rest of that week was rewriting the uh, event screen, which is uh, 
more straightforward and more complicated at the same time. Um, the timeline thing had, you know, collection view based pickers inside table cells. So that was its own level of complexity. <laughs> the event screen had a lot more control. So it had a, a name, a type field, uh, a favorite star toggle, um, the single date field, the multiple date fields, the ongoing toggle, things like that in the, uh, timeline picker. So you could switch an event from one timeline to another. So I had to re-implement all of that. So it took a couple of days to get it all working, uh, but eventually got it done and shipped. And I think it came out on Sunday, the week after we recorded last, but it's been out there getting downloaded. And I started noticing a really weird, in my opinion, absolutely unforgivable bug in Xcode. Do tell. So these forms are static UI table views inside. Actually, they're static UI table view controllers. So I'm using storyboards. I spent a little bit of time thinking, can I just do all of this in code? And I got a little ways into it. And it's like, this is more than I want to deal with. I'd rather just ship these features. Really thinking like these are temporary versions of these features until all the Swift UI stuff catches up. So I didn't want to really spend a bunch of time learning techniques that I don't really intend to use in the future. So they're, they're static UI table views in a storyboard that have outlets and actions connected to an overridden view controller that handles all the logic. And so if you imagine you, you create this element in the storyboard, I've defined exactly how many sections it should have and how many cells go in each section and then customize each one. But there is some kind of bug in the storyboard editor slash the storyboard save process or open process that will move my objects teeny tiny little bits at a time. So say what? The, yeah. So I, I can put my name field in the name cell centered exactly where it needs to be. I'm not using auto layout, I'm using pins and struts. So I've disabled auto layout for the view and set it up to automatically resize with pins and struts the way that it should. And I can run that, it'll show up exactly where it needs to be in the app. And then I can close my project and reopen it and Xcode will move it. And I can actually see it in the XML that's showing up in source, uh, source tree. Um, it is making tiny 0.5 adjustments to stuff. And it's, do it's not doing it to the same view every time. It's just, it seems kind of random. Like it's just deciding that these things need to shift. Uh, allow me to reiterate. What? Yeah. Uh, so the unforgivable part, in my opinion, is an application is editing my data against my will. Like it doesn't matter what type of application it is. That's never okay. This is my user data i'm writing this to be this specific way the application doesn't get to tell me doesn't get to force updates on me like that that's just wrong so i first i thought i was going crazy like just kept moving these things back into place and i spent some time looking into it and apparently this has been happening for about four years and it has to do with xcode and the resolution of the device that it's showing on in any scaling that might be applied. 
I'm not exactly sure what's triggering it, but it's some combination of those elements that when you're working on Mac OS, very few of the scaling options under the display settings are actually showing a native resolution. They're all scaled, combining pixels into multiple points or multiple pixels into a single point. Um, and there's some kind of just floating point math error that's being accumulated in these and Xcode is trying to resolve that by snapping stuff around. So I have no idea what's causing it. There have been, I found a lot of stack overthrow, stack overflow threads about people reporting this to Apple. I found some stuff on Apple's developer forums and doesn't seem to be something that's gonna be fixed anytime soon. So did it, you file a bug against it? No, I'm not gonna waste my time. Especially when it has all the other feedback tickets. Yeah. Um, so I haven't fixed it yet. Like I, I put my views back in place, but I can still see them moving around. I think the, there are two ways that I can approach this. <laughs> yeah. I can put them back, close the storyboard file, do a commit, and basically it only happens when the storyboard file itself is open. So if I don't edit this storyboard for the next six months, in theory, this shouldn't happen again. Um, but I need to make all the fixes, save the storyboard file, close it, make sure it's closed in any of the open tabs in Xcode, do the commit, and then keep working with my project as is and, and don't open that file. And then I need to probably just make a checklist item for when I'm shipping to just double check those two screens to make sure everything is placed correctly before I do the build. Because I never open my storyboard just to look at something. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's, if it was the same thing every time, I'd be fine. But it's it's different controls in different spots. And then when I go to fix it, so say the the delete button will be moved up two points or 2.5 points out of position. When I select it, the, the down arrow key doesn't work. It just shows me the blue line. Like this is as far down as I can go. I can hit the up arrow key and go even more misaligned. So I can't even fix this with the arrow keys. I can't type into the inspector to fix it. I actually have to drag the thing out of its element, let go, let it rest somewhere, you know, gain some inner peace and tranquility of itself, and then add it back to the cell. I, I cannot think of an exercise less optimized for anybody's inner peace. Yeah. Yeah, especially it's, it's an all mouse dragging, drag and drop thing with a guy who's got RSI issues who doesn't want to use gestures <laughs> like that. So, thanks. Wow. So, yeah. Before I figured out exactly what this issue was, I seriously contemplated rewriting the rest of the app in UI Kit. And I got, when I learned about this issue in more detail, I'm like, yeah, there's no way I'm doing that. <laughs> Absolutely no way. Um, Somebody alluded that I might be able to work around this issue by using auto layout constraints instead of the static placement of my objects. If the constraints always calculate the same position of where the storyboard is, mm -hmm. where the objects are rendered, and then it doesn't actually matter where they're placed in the storyboard in the same way. So they could still be misaligned right. to the storyboard, but auto layout system would snap them into their correct place at runtime. So maybe I need to just figure that stuff out. The yeah, only problem I, is there's, there's, for most of the views, auto layout is fine, but for some of them, 
like the timeline row with the circle and the icon and the label. That's what I was having trouble over the summer of trying to get these things anchored in such a way where it doesn't warp the circle. And everything that I had tried previously would always end up warping that circle by pulling it or stretching it, even though I you know, made it clear in the auto layout system that I want the aspect ratio to always remain the same. Like this has to be 32 points high and 32 points wide. It can't ever be anything else, but it would still stretch it. So, yeah. Hmm. I've gotten better at auto layout. I'm still not, I wouldn't even call myself good at it. I am functional at it, but I'm better than I used to be. So if you decide to dig into that, let me know and I'll see yeah. if I can help out. appreciate that. So I spent the rest of the week kind of um, learning more about core data. So a lot of the changes I want to do for version two have, it, they involve some additional tables, some additional fields on existing tables. So I wanted to learn more about core data in terms of doing more sophisticated fetches and using some of the better caching features. But I also wanted to learn about migrations because I haven't had to do a migration with this app yet. And I wanted to learn all the terminology and the process and give myself a way to work through the process without actually messing up my current app. So I, I went through the Core Data by Tutorials book from Ray Wenderlich, which was, I think, nine chapters. It took about five days worth of, you know, an hour or two a day going through it and picked up a ton of stuff. Like, already just half a dozen optimizations for the Core Data code that I'm already using um, and learned some pretty cool stuff with that, but then started learning about lightweight migrations and manual migrations, and then basically realized that while I can set up some lightweight migrations to move from one version to another. So imagine a scenario where I've got my, my timeline table and my events table with the related dates, and say I add two new fields to timelines. I don't really need to do much in the way of a migration because there's not going to be anything populated in the old records. If those fields are optional, that's not really anything that I have to do. If I want to populate those fields, then I'd have to write a manual migration and give it some logic. I would say, here's how you batch update the existing records when you do the migration. So for the most part, the work I want to do mostly involves lightweight migrations where I can just add something in addition to the current schema. Um, but what Xcode or what Core Data or Apple doesn't provide is a way to go from version one of the model to version five of the model. So what if somebody doesn't update for six months and then updates the app? How do we go from the really old data model to the latest data model? And that's where I actually have to break out into manual migrations and write a custom version of the stack that can basically perform a series of migrations in sequence, one to the next, and you know run through all of them and then end up at the final result rather than trying to map every single version to every single version, which just adds right. you know, tons Geometric of complexity. complexity. Yeah. So it's a ton of stuff. It's really cool stuff. 
Um, I am not going to do any of this in my app right now. I'm actually using my time tracking app as a good test bed for this stuff because it's it's built with the same technology. It's using the same mm-hmm. quotated backend and CloudKit syncing. And so I'm going to do stuff there where it's I need to basically put that schema in produ- into production and then start working on some migrations with it. But all of this stuff is complicated by the fact that CloudKit is receiving the other end of this. So I can't just add two new fields and call it a day. If I add two new fields to timelines and I update my iPhone, it goes through the migration, I start using those fields, those are gonna get added to my CloudKit container so that now that's gonna be updated. But say I have an iPad that I haven't updated yet. What do I do? Like, can that pull those records down that have the two new fields in them even though my schema has no idea how to recognize them or what to do with them. Um, so yeah, it gets pretty complicated. So there's there's some ideas I have. There's some stuff on Apple's website about how to basically add version fields to your core data or to your CloudKit tables and be able to check for those at runtime and make sure you're not downloading records that contain data that you can't work with. Um, but because I'm not really handling the abstraction layer myself there's a lot of questions so i'm not doing any of these features anytime soon that require the stuff like i need to <laughs> i need to really get good at this and get confident in my ability to handle these migrations and make sure i've covered all of the edge cases before i start using these types of stuff in production i i do have to say that i'm really jealous of your core data knowledge yeah i haven't i haven't ever had anything that I absolutely needed it for, but I've deprioritized certain potential projects precisely because I didn't have that knowledge Hmm. rather than, okay, now it's time to just sit down and learn core data. And so you have a large chunk of knowledge I don't have, and I'm a little jealous. Nice. Well, it's worth, it's worth reading that book if you want that knowledge, because there's some really good examples. I I may actually already have that book because I wanted that knowledge, but I haven't gone through it yet. It's one of mm-hmm. many books which I own and have not read yet. Yeah, it was updated in the fall for Swift 5.1. And I wonder if they're going to update it or add a chapter to it maybe next year with adding a chapter that deals with the CloudKit integration with Core Data. Because that stuff, it's, it's out there, but it's not super well documented and it's much more limited than using core data by itself or using CloudKit by itself, but you get a lot of behavior for free. So, Yeah, I think the version of the book that I have was still written in Objective-C. So. Mm. Nice. Old. So the rest of the week was kind of spent on that stuff um, and then making, kind of planning out some small features for retrospective timelines. So some got some user feedback. I've got a contact form on the website. So I've been getting a handful of responses every week with some new feature ideas and a startling number of people who want to sell me outsourcing development services for my massive company <laughs> that I'm obviously running. Yeah. Um, even though it only takes like one second of one blog post to realize that, hey, this is a solo dev doing his own thing. So... I've got some small features I want to do, and I've been kind of rethinking my strategy or plan for version two. 
So I, as we talked about last week, I was kind of building out this roadmap of like three big features that would come in a big version of the app that would I would try to launch with a bigger splash. And that involves one feature that I'm not even sure I'm going to make at this point, which is the custom query builder for timelines. And the, the reason I'm not sure I'm going to make it is nobody else is asking for it. Like it's something that I think should be there, but anytime, anytime I've mentioned it, nobody's said, oh, I really needed that or anything. It's just been kind of quiet. So I'm yeah. wondering like, is this a feature I'm just making for myself that nobody else would even use? Um, it, maybe I, I should just stick with the core reports for now. It may also become something that's more relevant to users after they've got, you know, more data in it. Mm. Three, four years of data or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been kind of rethinking about rather than finding ways to you know, do queries or reports on multiple timelines, really just focusing on features on the individual timelines and making those mm -hmm. just provide a lot more value of the data that they crunch and um, how they display data. So I'm kind of thinking about putting my 2.0 roadmap on the back burner and pulling some of the features off and just handling them as small point updates and just kind of keeping going with incremental improvements. Um, and I think I need to kind of reallocate some of my time that I would be spending developing the big features to reaching out to blogs, podcasts, and other people and seeing about talking about the app, um, particularly going on some of the other indie podcasts. Like we've had a couple other mm -hmm. indie developers here. So maybe going on some of their shows or some other shows in the community to talk about the development, but also the app itself. Um, so I just need to work up the courage to start asking people that. Mm -hmm. I just haven't done any of that yet. So, But uh, I did start working on the, what I'm still kind of referring to as the visual timeline, but which is quickly just becoming a way better version of the event list view. Um, okay. And I had some ideas about this a couple weeks ago about how to kind of populate the list with empty day rows and then populate the rows with events when they had data. And I actually called Dave during our hiatus last month and worked through some of the logic for this. And I finally had a chance to build some of it over the weekend. And I got as far, you know, I got about an hour into it and got some something on screen. And it really only took like 10 minutes of playing with it. Like, this is not what I want. Like. It okay. took way long to plan it, but as soon as I got onto the screen and started scrolling through, I was like, nope, this is not going to work. <laughs> okay. So I decided to try a different approach, which is something I did yesterday, which was basically calculating, and this kind of goes all the way back to an earlier idea I had last summer or, or fall, basically calculating some space in between the events based on how long the timeline is. And the math for this wasn't too complicated, but it was complicated by the fact that I'm the kind of person who has to make variables for his thoughts. So I'm actually like opening a, a, uh, a text document and writing, let you know this idea equals this and writing a paragraph about it, like setting variables for myself as I'm thinking through this. Um, but basically at its most simple form, I 
When you navigate to a timeline, I get the earliest date for the timeline and the latest date of the timeline. And then I figure out how many, how long I want the timeline to be or how much padding in total do I want to divvy out to the timeline based on that. So currently I'm using 20 points times the number of rows in the timeline. So I come up with a nice big number and then I divide that number by the number of rows to figure out here's how much each day in the timeline should receive. And then for each individual row, I say, I reach to the previous row and say, how many days ago was this? Give me that many days worth of padding in this region. Now, I know none of this makes any sense talking about it on a podcast, so I'll try to you know, post a link to some screenshots. Um, it took a while to work through, but I got something working now. What it's doing now is basically just adding an empty text view to the section between rows and then adding padding onto that. But I'm going to redo that and actually add a, a small object in that section that can draw a vertical line that connects the two objects and then put a date in the middle of that line that represents the time between them. So you can say, here's when I started this job, here's the date of my promotion, and here's the time between those dates. So just like I have duration calculations from the event to the current date that you're looking at, I can also have those calculate in terms of other events on the timeline. So that's what I've been working on. I've just got the basics of it working now. I need to figure out better ways to make it look and then start sharing some of that and see if people find that stuff useful. I'm going to do a, a demo with the with a, a fake timeline. I guess it's a real timeline, but the Star Wars movies release dates. So you can see how long ago each movie was and then the time span in between each one to get a, a sense of that. And then uh, the other, some of the other stuff for, you know, I'm kind of pulling forward are just lots of small features. So re-adding notes to the app that was pulled before version one because of, of the lack of support for multi-line text controls in Swift UI. I can just add that add a UI text view to the static form for events and we add notes. I've had a couple people ask for um, being able to change a setting for how the duration strings are calculated and how the date strings are calculated or formatted. So right. I want to add some system-wide settings of like show dates in this format or you know a list of you know five different options. Same thing with the durations. Like, do you want it to show year, month, day, or do you want it to show you know one year? Said, can I just have it calculate the days? Like, I want to see it was seven hundred forty-two days ago. Stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I think I'm really just going to focus on small things like that and really focus on making the the timeline experience itself better. Like what what additional questions can the app answer about the existing data without adding too much more complexity in terms of adding new tables and fields? And just also really focusing in on the stuff that SwiftUI is good at, which is displaying interesting things. So it's not really great at data entry yet, but it, the, the graphics side of it and the animation side of it are really good. So being able to kind of move some of my attention towards things that SwiftUI is really good at now um, and then keeping some of the more complex features like the query builder into, you know, moving that into like a someday maybe list. 
for when things get better. So yeah, that's the week. Um, I wanted to plug something real quick, which mm-hmm. was uh, Charlie, who was on our show, I think on episode 10, a couple months ago, he launched his own podcast last week. It's called Launched, and he's been working on it for a couple months, and he actually made a big show last week. He actually released the first episode on Monday and another episode every day throughout the week. So there are five <laughs> episodes out. After this week, after that, it's going to be a, a fortnightly show. And uh, it's interesting, just a little bit of chance, his fortnightly week is the week that we are not recording. So oh, nice. if you want to uh, have something to fill in the gaps when we're not here, go check out that. But I'll, I'll post a link to that in the show notes. Definitely worth checking out. Very cool. Anything else from you, Dave? Now that I can think of, got to get back to work. Yeah, me too. Cool. Well, thanks for listening.